It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. So I have a topic today that is very, very current. And actually, it relates to many of us in a way that we may not have thought of um, prior to this COVID crisis. And if you are someone who has hoarded toilet paper and maybe even water, your ears should perk up because we're going to talk about hoarding today. Hoarding is a distinct disorder with its own diagnostic criteria and treatment requirements. Many hoarders hide their compulsive behavior from family landlords, neighbors, insurers, and more. Once discovered, they may face scrutiny from animal and child protection officers and code enforcement officials. Overcoming the mental disorder recognized by the American Psychiatric Association requires more than pop psychology and a 30-gallon garbage bag. In the new book, Conquer the Clutter, social worker Elaine Birchall, founder of the Canadian National Hoarding Coalition, and co-author Suzanne Cronkright give potential and practicing hoarders, as well as family, friends, and helping professionals, practical strategies for getting out from under the overwhelming piles and regaining control. In her 17 years as a leading hoarding disorder specialist and clutter coach, Elaine has seen that enduring success results from a combined approach of individualized therapy and hands-on cleanup. We're um, going to talk to Elaine, and um, she's going to give us practical strategies and help us understand what hoarders go through. Good morning, Elaine, and welcome. Good morning, Randy. Thank you for having me. You are so very welcome. My mouth was dry. I just had to take a a drink of water. (laughs) (laughs) And I have my own water. I did not buy any. Um, So before we get started in talking about hoarding in general, let's talk about um, what people are doing now during this crisis. We talked a little bit about this before we went on air. Um, The hoarding of toilet paper and water. What is this about? It's about fear. It's about fear. It's about uncertainty. It's about feeling vulnerable and doing whatever you can see is possible to make yourself safe and ready for the unknown. It's that fear of the unknown and uncertainty, right? And so you focus on things that may not actually be factual. They may not actually be that important to the perceived threat, like toilet paper, of all the things. So many people have chosen the same thing. And, you know, it is humorous only after you know you're safe. But at the time, you're doing, 
you have that fundamental human fight to survive and to take care of yours, whoever you, you love and you're responsible for. And you do it sometimes in irrational ways because this COVID crisis is a per, I don't mean to judge anybody. If you've got a house full of toilet paper and that makes you feel safe, then you know what? Maybe that's what you needed to do. But you're not any safer. That's the thing for doing that. So the perceived need has to be fact-based for you to actually achieve what you're trying to achieve. This COVID crisis in no way is an abdominal or gastrointestinal problem. So toilet paper is not going to be a key uh, resource, and neither is water. Most of us are on like municipal water sources, and nothing's going to happen to them. Um, that is always going to be an essential service, the maintenance of that. And so it's it's an opportunity rather than see it as something as a negative behavior. Randy, I like to look at the positive of things realistically and come at it. And so this is an opportunity for people who have given into that fear um, and loaded up in whatever they felt they needed that isn't fact-based to have some compassion for other people who live there all the time. This is not an unusual behavior. And so we have compassion for your fear as well. I'm concerned that the toilet paper isn't actually going to help you in any realistic way. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, thank you. Thank you because, uh, you know, it. when we um, arranged the show, this was not an issue. So it's really kind of... Um, <laughs> Amazing that it, it worked out that way. Uh, you've been a social worker for um, over, way over 30 years um, and a hoarding specialist. Right. And you say in your book that you hear on a daily basis the word overwhelmed. Mm. Why are people saying that? Why are you hearing that from everyone? So the state of being overwhelmed is the state of a number of things. Um, mostly, mostly it's being overloaded, either by stimulus or by perceived threat, all right? And to the point where you're in mental, or you have been in mental overdrive, perhaps physical overdrive too, beyond your tolerance level. And now what your body does in order, and your mind as well, along with your body, does is they begin to shut you down in order to survive, right? We can only afford to look at, Randy, what we feel competent and able to deal with. Otherwise, the blinders go on, and then when the blinders don't work well enough anymore, our mind starts to shut down or our mind in conjunction with our body. And we are always, remember, that feels like a negative thing. <clears throat> and, excuse me, and there is help available. I want to go through some resources in, in a minute or two. Um, but understand this is actually your body and your mind's way, the only way it can see to help you survive so that you have the opportunity to take advantage of resources when they come. 
The only trick there is you need to be awake and listening. You need to maintain enough balance in your mental and physical health that you can be aware that resources are out there and still have the fortitude to reach out for them. Mm. Okay. What exactly is hoarding? Hoarding is uh, is a dis- it's a mental health disorder, and it has three criteria. Not every messy situation or overaccumulated situation is hoarding. There must be what most people would describe as an excessive accumulation, and I like to say a failure to resolve proportionately. <coughs> Sorry, I got a bit of a frog in my throat. Um, okay, I always do. Mean- <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, That doesn't mean that one thing in, one thing out. If you're on the one thing in and one thing out path, at this point anyway, you're not anywhere near hoarding. It's that you, you lack the ability to follow through, to resolve the buildup proportionately. So you've lost that check and balance system, or maybe you never developed it for good reasons. Um, of realizing when it's just getting beyond your ability to manage. Second criteria, some or all of the living spaces, and that can be your office because you do live there, can be your home, your garage, your car, your backyard, your deck, your porch, your any space where life happens, um, can no longer be used for their intended purpose. They've been repurposed for a a task or a role that they're not designed for, all right? Third criteria, somebody's distressed. Or if they knew the truth about the condition of the property, they would have cause, legitimate cause to be concerned. That can be your family, your friends. It can be your mortgage company, your home insurance company, bylaw, property standards, fire department, children's services, services for the elderly, um, animal control. And is there a difference between clutter and hoarding, or someone who clutters and someone who hoards? Yes, there is. The fundamental difference is proportion and duration, all right? And so clutter, um, those who clutter and live with it semi-regularly are able to make those decisions. They don't meet criteria one, that some or all of the living spaces can no longer be used for their intended purpose. And there is a temporary excessive accumulation, but they are able to resolve it more easily. Also, generally, at that point, they don't have as intense a relationship with their things. And that's a really important factor because we all, those who hoard and those who don't, we all have relationships with our things. That's why they that's why they're still around in our environment. And so that that relationship isn't quite as intense. Here's the trick though that I the the conundrum in all of the years that I have worked exclusively with individuals, families and other professionals around hoarding disorder. I've 
you, it's obvious that not everyone who lives with a little bit of clutter is necessarily going to go on to hoard. But every single person, every single person, this is in the thousands, who ends up in a hoarding situation, every person told me, Randy, they started out with clutter and it got out of control for reasons that were they felt were beyond their control and they didn't reach out soon enough because once you're overwhelmed, that very part of your brain, that your body and your brain, your mind, um, is no longer working for you. All right, it, it can it, the executive function part of your brain doesn't work strategically to help you assess a plan, make a plan, follow through on a plan. So, is that executive portion of the brain shut down, or just um, or just frozen? I mean, is it is it frozen completely is really gone, or is word. it just for, yeah? No, 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 no. You know, because it, it doesn't actually cause brain damage, but it becomes unfunctionable. Okay. And so um, frozen is a beautiful word. And I, that is also a word that I hear most people say. I just, I, I know I need to do it, but I, I, I can't even figure out how, how or where to start. It all feels insurmountable. It's so it's so um, hard to understand that. Although you know you did explain the commonality we have with what's going on now, um, who is susceptible to becoming a hoarder? What are some of the um, trait paths or susceptibilities yeah. that we have to? So I break it down into three paths. The first is genetics. We do know that eighty. Um, 80- if there is a family history of OCD, that there is a higher, up to 84% um, chance of a, someone who hoards having a first-degree family relative who hoards. So that's a mother, father, sister, brother. Um, we also know that there are three chromosomes with markers in common. Um, that Johns Hopkins University Press did a study. They found a fourth chromosome uh, chromosome 14 that is was directly connected to that familial pattern of OCD so we do know that there can be a genetic predisposition to hoard doesn't mean everybody who has that predisposition will hoard sometimes um, some lucky folks have the predisposition but they don't encounter those um, debilitating environmental crises or overloads that cause someone to go over the line into hoarding uh, disorder. They don't cause it, however, all right? So the second um, path, some individuals who live with other well-defined comorbid factors, and that's really just a $5 word for other mental health and physical health conditions are known to be at a higher risk of also developing a second disorder, that being hoarding disorder. So some of those mental health disorders are OCD, um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, social anxiety, ADD, ADHD, a lot of people with ADD and ADHD also, for good reason, end up creating a hoarding environment. There's a list of them. Some of the physical uh, um, conditions, though, 
are Parkinson's and MS, where there's a cognitive deterioration that quite often can result in hoarding disorder um, becoming a factor. And there are certain times in a person's lifespan, too, Randy, that they can be at higher risk. One would be um, after an, an experience of grief where there's been a loss and they are active, acutely grieving, all right? Um, that is often experienced as a really inopportune time for people to have to be making decisions about the possessions they inherit from loved ones. And the other time is um, when you age sufficiently that you have mobility issues, sufficiently bad mobility issues that you can't manage all of the refuse, all of the paper that comes into our environment every day unsolicited. And so they get stuck because they can't process their environment. They don't actually have hoarding disorder, but they have a physical or a lifetime, a life, um, what would I say, a life stage issue that creates the hoarding disorder. Why do people hoard animals? I mean, I would imagine that the intention is good, that they are animal lovers initially. Um, Why do they hoard animals and not see the abuse that they're creating? Um, Animal hoarding, there is no, there is no simple hoarding situation. Okay. By the time somebody's hoarding, life has become quite complex, (laughs) unusually complex. Um, Animal hoarding is among the most complex and the most resistant to treatment. Um, It's not that it can't be treated, but, the prevalence rate of recidivism is tremendous. There are five different types of animal psychiatric models for animal hoarding. Now, <clears throat> I don't like to apply a label or a model to individuals, but the reason we break it down that way, or I, I'm open to breaking it down that way, is as a clinician, that gives me a whole body of treatment practice that is already there. I don't have to try to start from zero. So we've got um, animal hoarding, a psychiatric model, obsessive compulsive, where that animal uh, or those animals um, are seen to meet the need of the individual to have. Um, There is no off switch. So as many as possible. And of course, we couch that in noble terms, right? We're a rescuer, we're a whatever, but but we lose track of the damage we're doing that we're not actually rescuing these animals because we can't we don't have the ability to provide the care uh, for them that we're actually holding these animals hostage, and we're just not able to see that. Another would be um brokering of animals. So the puppy mills and the puppy uh, farms, the the kitten mills, the kitten farms, um, where it's more for economic, they're seen as a product, um, and and it's for a profit margin. We also have the rescuer, where um, because of factors in our past, we're vulnerable to needing to be what we didn't get rescued from abuse or neglect. Um, 
there are it's it's complex based on the person's psychological makeup and profile and of course like many times when most of us make less than good uh, decisions we stick handle our logic to try to make it make sense so that we don't have to look at the negative side that we're creating for ourselves and for the animals and the community as well. Is is anyone susceptible to this? I mean, do um, you know? Do we all have? Are we all susceptible to levels of this? That's a really good question because that path three. Um, I do believe, Randy, that most people under the right conditions are susceptible. And that path three is about people who are kind of chronically a little disorganized. It's not terrible. But every so often they have to kind of close the door and take the phone off the hook. And, you know, this weekend is the weekend we're going to put it all back together. And um, and But they have to do that repeatedly. It It doesn't ever... Um, necessarily get tremendously out of control, but it gets ahead of us. We just, we're not the most organized people. A lot of people are like that, all right? They fight with managing clutter. And then something happens, as happens to all of us, Randy, okay? Into every life, a little rain must fall, right? And right. It could be one one major event, or it could be a series of smaller events, less serious, but they come in a compressed period of time. And we get destabilized, with slightly destabilized with each one. And then by, you know, the third, say, um, we're on our knees. We're, we're overwhelmed and we are... Um, we're unresourced as well. We've used up all of our internal mental and physical resources. And when you get to a state of overwhelmed, you are highly susceptible to either inadvertently temporarily or getting stuck in a loop where you continue to add to the buildup and end up in some pretty serious condition, living conditions. And I do believe since life deals all of us setbacks, the, the, the key there, Randy, is every day work to maintain an adequate level, no matter what's happening to you, okay, an adequate level of mental health and physical health balance so that you never have to be in a tremendous deficit where the next event will be like a tsunami for you. Great, great advice. What, um, you say there's three types of attachment relationships that people can have with their things. What are they and can you explain them? Yes, and most people have these, actually, um, to some degree or another. It's a quite, individuals who hoard have them intensely and and to probably most items that meet that criteria. So the three attachment patterns are sentimental attachment, all right, where things are representational of people, events, status, life, life periods, relationships that are probably no longer available to the person. And so 
the perception is that you invest your actual feelings about that person or, or the thing you miss into the object. And the object becomes not just a, a memory, a way to think, oh, I, that, that's part of that experience. It actually holds the essence of it. So that if you decide that it's not in your best interest to keep that, you're actually um, giving part of the person away. You're, you're giving the experience away, the status you've had, the, the whatever it represents, it's gone like you never had it. And that is so dangerous because we're giving our power away, Randy. Those objects are just inanimate objects. We give them the meaning. We have the power to give them the meaning. They themselves have no um, intrinsic value. And every tangible thing we have has a best before date before something happens to it. That's the reality of tangible things. And so whatever grieving we need to do, we need to do that currently because when that thing disappears or something happens to it, we lose it, it's stolen, it fades, it it breaks, we have that grief to do then and it's much harder to do down the line. The second attachment pattern is intrinsic. Again, we're applying the intrinsic value and meaning to that. So we see things as so important because every single thing has a transferable use. And maybe you've heard the old adage, uh, Randy, it's a sin to waste. And so we hold on to it. Or we spent, we perceive that we spent good money on that. And we haven't had our value out of it. So somehow by holding on to a bad decision... Or a good decision whose time is gone, it's passed, it's like we're putting the money back in the bank or we still have the value of it. We don't. Things deteriorate. Their value lessens. And every old thing is not an antique. All right. And the, the third attachment pattern is aesthetic. And this is where certain characteristics of that item or those types of items trigger the amygdala part of the brain and it's like super excitement, like zero to a thousand in 10 seconds. Every time we see them, they give us pleasure. We have a, we have almost, um, a reassuring, um, rewarding experience. Um, when we have them. Just the seeing of them gives us pleasure. Um, And so that's tricky because it's actually part of our, the the chemistry, the hormones that are being sent to our brain. And I work really hard with my clients to help them identify the triggers and to put those triggers in some better proportion for themselves so they're not held victim to the next thrill um of the find yeah wow yeah i mean when i need little jolts of joy we all need little jolts absolutely we do we do um when i've watched the show relationships rather than things right right sorry sorry when i've watched the show hoarders you know a lot of them say that they're going to need these things down the road so 
they have it in case they may need it. Um, so do you come, run into that a lot? A lot. Yeah, that's intrinsic hoarding. And okay. so that perceived need, and just like the toilet paper and the water, mm-hmm. we perceive we're going to need it. Um, and so we feel not um, assured or competent um, that we're going to be able to meet our need. I was telling you before the show about this. I didn't always have this experience or this this belief, but and you know I'm somewhat of a bit of a hard-headed Irishman, so it <laughs> didn't come to me easily. But I kept banging my head on it and thinking, okay, Elaine, how many times do you have to encounter this to sort of realize that that is true? It's the truth, and that is that the universe coming to a, a, a state of mind where you can accept that you are not all powerful. And that if you keep every single thing that you ever come across in your environment, you are no more prepared for that eventual crisis that you think is coming or you believe or, you know, or will come. You're no more prepared because the more you keep brandy, the less you can find. You can't maintain it. And so I bumped my head so many times. One time I had one Saturday where I was seeing four clients and they had very distinct needs uh, themselves. And as I helped client number one, this is not a horse story. This is true. But this has played out so many times um, that I, I hold it as a belief. And that is that the universe will provide what you need when you need it in the order you need it if you're awake and listening and your antenna are up. All right, because client number one, when I was helping her, had things that were quite distinct that client number three needed. All right, client number two, um, we just we were moving furniture around, and they decided they didn't want one end of one of those sectional um, living room uh, cities, and it was the perfect. Uh, another client I had was moving into a very small room. He was a senior, and he needed a place to sit um, <laughs> and have his friends in. And it, but if the window was on a certain side, and so the arm, had, if there was going to be an arm, had to be on a particular side. All right, and it could only be a particular length. Otherwise, he wasn't going to have a bed in the room. And Lo and behold, not only did this um, end of the settee fit perfectly, I, the, the person said to me, well, I've got other things. Is there anything else anybody needs? And I said, well, uh, we need um, a coverlet for a bed. We need a, um, a bed cover. Um, but it can't be girly and it can't be flowery. And, and his rug is a really unusual shade of green. And she said, oh, I, I, I have these. And she flipped open um, a city, like a box, and there were three choices in there. One of them was perfect. Oh, my gosh. And so I thought, well, let's, well, let's go for gold here. I said, 
um, the cat he gave away has come back because it hasn't adjusted with the new owner, and um, he's not able to bend down and clean the, the litter box, and it, the ammonia smell is going to get him evicted. And she said, you're kidding. She said, my husband and I just went out, and she said, we bought this, um, it's like a diaper genie, but it's for cat litter. And she said, we got it home and we realized we already have one. <laughs> and, of course, this is hoarding. And she said, and you know what? It's going to cost me more in time and trouble to return it. Do you want it for him? Oh, my gosh. I said, yeah, sure. I went to the next client, and I had a, a family that Children's Aid was asking me to work with, and if we didn't get the place cleaned up and an area in the home set up that was appropriate for the children, young children, little children, um, they were going to have to go into care. And this woman I was working with because she lost her son, he had been um, apprehended by Children's Aid like 18 years before, but behind this pile of things that we were working on, I said, you know, I'm I just had an interesting experience, and so I'm just I'm just throwing it out to the universe. Okay, I need children's toys. I need an area where we can organize the toys. I need kids' things, like but little kids' things. And she said, "Oh, this might work." So I told her a little of the story of this family without identifying them. And she said, "I've been holding on to them." She said. Um, but I'm ready to let them go if somebody else is in the same position I was in 18 years ago. I had a carload full of kids' toys. I had a toy organizer. I had rugs with little roads on them for cars. I had dinky cars coming out my ears. I mean, that was the day when I thought, okay, there's no denying that there's something to do with it. I, you know, I've always believed that. Yeah, I always have. But, but I always thought maybe it was because I was lucky enough to never be in a tremendously deprived situation, that it was a matter of my good fortune. But I realize it isn't, and so I invite listeners, just trust that the universe will provide what you need in the order you need it if you're awake and listening, okay? And you just have to ask. Just send it out. Ask everybody you know if you need something, and pretty soon somebody is going to discover that they have it and they don't need it. Yeah, that's such a great point you made. And I love the way you illustrated it. I mean, those were great, just great examples of, um, and it just of that happening. phenomenon. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it just it does happening. absolutely happen. happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what are the 10 most common things that people hoard? Oh, boy. <clears throat> so paper, 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 um, clothing, um, memorabilia that are small, um, animals. Uh, did I mention paper? Yes. Um, <laughs> <First>. <laughs> um, so... Um, what about food? What Do they hoard food? Some people... They either specialize in hoarding food or they don't, all right? Food can be, if you've been through, and particularly if you've been through a perceived life 
circumstance where uh, food security was an issue. I'm working with a mom who has two children her and her husband as well. She came from like extreme abuse and um, physical, mental, and hoarding. Both her parents hoarded. Uh, they were chronic uh, abusive alcoholics. And so even at four, she was being sent out um, with a little cart and, you know, $5 to get what, was left over in the budget. Um, And so she grew up in that extreme uh, deprivation. And her husband has a good job, uh, but she cooks like she's a restaurant and things get, get frozen. She has, uh, she fights the urge to get yet again, another freezer. The The fridge, when she goes out to do groceries, she has, she's fighting and she's doing quite well from where she started. She fights to have a realistic perception of what she needs. So I quite frequently arrive and there are 20 pounds of um, tomatoes, for instance, because she's going to do another round of spaghetti sauce. Um, The freezer won't hold anything uh, more. Um, And, you know, we... We, she's done very, very well from where she started because when I started with her, the kitchen floor, for instance, was easily two feet deep um, in foods of all different kinds um, and canned things, whatever, that didn't get put away. Um, so despite the fact that two of her family members, like in her family that she's living with right now, um, are blind. And so... Um, they, you know, the kitchen is off limits to them because it's a tripping hazard. Um, but if you if you realized where she started, the fear and the um, unhealthy beliefs that helped her survive, um, that were taught to her, modeled to her by her her parents, um, you and you knew her history and how she hasn't created that for her family. She's, she, her adage is, if it's nothing like what I grew up with, I do exactly the opposite to what happened, and I know that somewhere I'm in a better, I'm in a better realm of good. Um, wow. Interesting. So, yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. How does, um, so how do you treat um, people who have this um, Hoarding issue, um, and is intervention sometimes used? I mean, what what is the best way to treat someone who is who is having this problem? Well, let's handle the intervention question first, Randy, because I know that many of the people who are listening um, to your show right now either are living with hoarding, and if they are living with hoarding themselves, or they love somebody who is. I have a free podcast that I'm doing, and I'm only doing it through the corona, you're stuck at home period. Okay, every Wednesday from 11 till 12, um, daylight saving time. And people can come and ask their specific questions, which we probably won't get entirely covered in the show today. Um, And if they go to hoarding.ca, which is my website, there is um, 
an invitation there with the link to the Zoom meeting room on Wednesdays, 11 to 12, Daylight Saving Time. So we'll start with that. Um, And the other um, thing, I believe that you really need the efficacy and the benefit, the success of the plan is based on the excellence of the assessment. Because people hoard for, at a population level, we've covered the three paths, all right? But it goes way beyond that. It goes to all of the little ways that we create paths and twists and barriers in our own mind. Our belief system, our fear system, our habits, what we grew up with, we can hit a target if we don't know what the target looks like. So, again... Um, on hoarding.ca, I would ask people, go and take the Are You a Hoarder in the Making quiz. I designed that. Um, take it, scale yourself, get your results, and that will tell you where on that continuum of risk. Risk is what we're trying to manage. You are. And then act accordingly. Whatever range you fall in, I have ideas for what your next steps would be. Okay, that's number one. Um, The next thing is sit down and ask yourself, how long has this problem been going on? And why would it get any better if you keep repeating the same strategies or or use the same beliefs? The same strategies you've used in the past the same beliefs you're using to guide you are going to create the same results moving forward. And there are answers to this. But they're they're as unique as the individual. The path, the particular path in, Randy, is the path I need to understand or you need to understand in order to follow that path back out. So that path could have been generated by grief. It could have been generated by some of any of the, what we call the comorbid factors, those mental health and physical health disorders or situations you're living with. It could be, um, it could be situational. You might be in a reactive phase right now based on an experience you've had and you need help getting over that. Those two times in a person's life, One of those times was made very clear to me by somebody who is an extremely competent individual who was in an acute grief uh, experience over an event that happened, and he couldn't see his way to the simplest solution that he would give to his patients. Um, Sometimes when it's our life, we see it differently. And and no, too, there is nothing broken about you. There is nothing wrong or warped or dysfunctional about you. You're having a very human experience. It's just you're stuck with it. I have have had clients who are judges, lots of lawyers, doctors, lots of doctors, nurses, teachers, um, translators, researchers, I've had people who can't read or write, all right? I've got people who've got four post-grad degrees. I've got people, one or two people who are millionaires, all right? You, 
this doesn't respect anybody. It doesn't say anything bad or negative about you. It just means you're stuck and you need to find help to find the path you need out of the situations that led you here. And those, those answers yeah. are available. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, that. That relieves a lot of us who feel like we're, you know, we may be um, strange or outcasts or something like that. Yes. In the beginning of your book, um, you say, when mm-hmm. clearing your path, keep in mind, and you list five things. And I like this because it's something that I use with my clients as well. Because when you're, and I'll, I'll name them in a second, but um, when you are healing, or when any of us are healing, we're often our worst enemy. So you say, when clearing your path, keep in mind, be gentle with yourself. Yes. The second one is you will never overcome anything difficult by looking down on yourself. The third yes. one is we all make mistakes, whether or not we hoard, and we all go through periods when success eludes us. The fourth one is we are all flawed, imperfect human beings, just the way we are supposed to be. And the fifth one is we are all more than the problems or limitations we have. I really like that, um, and I think that's so important for the person when they're trying to process this, because if they don't eliminate the self-deprecation and the... um, just the beating themselves up constantly, they can't move forward, right? Exactly, exactly, Randy. It, it's a little like it's a little like being in a hole, okay? That and we're all in holes at some time or another, okay? We all are. There's nobody who's exempt. That's part of the human experience. You're just living a human experience, right? Don't get stuck with it though. You don't have to stay there. And it's like trying to should yourself to death. Shoulds are rules. Rules are things that are the ideal. Most of us don't ever accomplish the shoulds on a regular basis, and yet we can still manage. And what I say to my clients is when you beat yourself up or you remind yourself, oh, there, I did it again. Oh, that's just me. And then it's kind of like a little slap, you know, Um it's like I want you to picture yourself in this hole that you're only up to your waist in, okay? You could get out of that with a little help. And so that shooting, that self-deprecation is like having a shovel, and every time you do it, you just dig the base of that hole a little deeper. And then you do it again a little deeper. The shoulds and the fault-finding Okay, the, and self-deprecation is like digging yourself deeper in the hole. All right. I love that reach imagery. Out, I love that. Reach out for the help you need and fill in the hole. There's nothing wrong with you except you're overwhelmed. You can do this. And I'm not just saying that as a pitch. This is not some Pollyanna statement. The reason I love the work I do is because every single person is unique And the knowledge that they have been kind enough to share with me about the reality of what they're living and what it feels like helps me then to give you more ideas, more options to help yourself. And you can do it. It's doable. It's not doable in 24 hours. 
So don't be impatient. It didn't happen overnight. It's not going to clear itself up overnight. So I ask people, if all I got to tell them is this, this would be really important. Every day know that you're worth it, first of all. Whatever you dream and you want, you can do with the right help, and you can get that help. Go to my website. There's lots of free resources. There's no money involved. Lots of free resources, okay? But 15 minutes. Anybody can do anything for 15 minutes. 15 minutes, pick up one thing and resolve it. Don't put it down until you've made a decision. Is it a keep? Is it a go? Or is, it, is there some other resolution in the middle? And the in-the-middle resolutions are you can recycle it, you can donate it. If it costs you a lot of money and you're really having a hard time or it's so beautiful that you can't part with it but you know you don't need it, who else would benefit from that? I just donated, okay, a beautiful dining room set that we had for 45 years. This dining room set was like a friend. Everybody who's not with me any longer, I could see them around that table. It was like our life happened at that table. And I decided that not because I'm rich, just because it would give me more peace, that if I could donate that somewhere, somebody would find it and they would want the same life around that table that we were lucky enough to have. And my crew took it over, and Steve, one of my crew, and it was hard. I went down and said goodbye to it. I didn't cry, but I went down and said goodbye to it. I thanked it like a friend you would, because it was like a friend. Right. And he said, Elaine, you wouldn't believe it. He said, we didn't even get it off the truck. And he said, there were people lined up who wanted it. <laughs> the, thing, the thing didn't even make it to the floor. That's awesome. All right? And and I I was sitting at my table the other day and I thought, you know, it gives me peace and a little bit of, okay, that it's come full circle. I I didn't get $2,000 for it, which would have been nice, but you know what? This is going to do me a lot more good. Somebody is living their life around that table right now. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So is, would you say that hoarding is about safety or control or both? can be. Um, safety is the thing I focus on first, always safety first. You need to have two minimum 33-inch paths um, from one entrance and exit route. You need to have two ways in and out of wherever you live. Um, the piles hopefully can't be any higher than, say, your waist or your hips. Um, you don't have an excessive accumulation um, that is combustible in your home. Uh, nothing around, like, uh, easily, again, 33 inches, if at all possible, close to any heat source. Um, so that's your... It get particularly gas stoves, your hot water tank, your furnace if it's gas, um, or um, propane, um, independent heaters. Um, remember that it's a really bad idea to use extension cords on a permanent basis. Um, much better to have the power bars that um, are are going to allow you to have. Uh, 
the ability to change where electrical things are. The reason for that is either huge tripping hazards, Randy, and mice love to burn. When you've got a buildup of things, sooner or later you're going to have mice. They love to chew and they love to burrow, and they have caused more than one fire. Okay. Wow. This is um, this is so very interesting, and I thank you for bringing this to us. Uh, your book, Conquer the Clutter, is so comprehensive. Anything you could possibly want to know, whether you are the hoarder or the person um, concerned about the hoarder, um, this book has everything you could ever want to know about it, and uh, it's beautiful, and it's like, you know, 260 some pages. It's a really nice big book. Great resource. Um, and you have written this with Suzanne Cronkright. Um, what what is her what was her part of the book? Su- Suzanne is a technical writer, so she saved the the readership um, the experience of endless run on sentences and, and dangling <laughs> participles. I have been known, yeah, and like she was the project manager. Her her organizational mind of how to present material, and we we edited, we wrote it. I wrote, she wrote a draft. I went in and put the personality, and the the mental health strategies in it. Then uh, and and just the passion in it, um, which I feel because I I see the faces in my mind of the people who have struggled and succeeded. And and so I see that continuity, and I think it's so important to give people realistic hope and practical strategies. This is not just another how-to book. This is how to manage yourself and that internal process and how to handle the outside process as well, the external, because services aren't easily available, and many people, even if they are, like, for instance, I'm fortunate that uh, with a doctor's referral, my services are generally reimbursable to my clients under their extended health plans. But some people don't, many people don't have that. And many people don't have the resources. And I, I, I'm from Canada, you know, we are each other's, our brother's keeper. And uh, why wouldn't you help somebody if you could? So I wanted my legacy to be a book that, that remained that meant that nobody had to be stuck without enough resources um, to help themselves get out of being stuck. Well, you have definitely accomplished that. I know it was a labor of love. Um, you know, and I'm a writer. I have books. I know what <laughs> I know what goes into putting a book out. Um, I, I, you know, I every step of the way. So. I can really appreciate that. We've been asked but, by Johns Hopkins to do a, a therapist guide as well. Oh. So we're just starting to conceptualize the strictly oh. therapist guide. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Okay. My you sister used to my sister used to many, many years ago used to design book covers for the Johns Hopkins Press, but this was so many years ago. Um eons. <laughs> Maybe fifty. <laughs> They're great um, but, people. They are great yeah. people to, yeah. to work but you're with my knowledge. You, it's Very. wonderful that they that they published your book for you. Anyway, it um it's been wonderful talking to you and um I hope you have a wonderful day and that you and your family are safe and healthy. We are working at it. 
we are working at it very hard, and I hope the same for you and all Thank of you. the listeners. You stay safe. There's a, there's, life will return to some form of normal, and we'll get on with it and enjoy it. Yep. Amen. <laughs> all right, <laughs> Thank Elaine. You, Randy. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. you so too. we are Bye-bye. out of time. But um, if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.